0: Today, on the Bill Kelly Podcast, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University, on what we might expect this year in Canadian politics. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, also a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, and a former CSIS analyst on intelligence briefings and why those who should read them apparently don't. Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business on where gas prices may be going this year, and OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt with his report card on road fatalities for 2022. And it's not good. I'm Shona Thompson filling in, and the Bill Kelly podcast starts right now.
1: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Just before the holidays, There was a terrible mass shooting at a Vaughan condo building, and over the holidays there was the murder of OPP Constable Greg Pachala, which puts the spotlight again on gun control and what we should do about it. Healthcare also in the spotlight, particularly here in Ontario, with a pathway to better funding from the federal government in question, with Ottawa and the provinces seeming no closer to an agreement. And there's some speculation that the agreement between the federal liberals and the NDP this year isn't going to last through the year. So here to discuss this and, well, a lot more is Dr. Lori Turnbull, who is director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Happy New Year! Happy New Year to you too. Hopefully it's uh, not the same as the old year.
2: I know, I know. I think everybody's got that sense of here's hoping this is going to be something pretty different.
0: Well, you know, as I mentioned off the top, uh, just in this area up in Vaughan and uh, over in Haldeman County, we had uh, two terrible uh, murders that involved uh, gun violence. Um, And so I wanted to start with gun control. I think that's probably
2: a a good place for us to start. Absolutely. Um, And this was an issue uh, that had obviously this has been a, a major issue for a long time. It's something we were talking about before we went into the holiday break. And when tragedies happen, it, it really kind of brings the issue front and center even more as something that uh, governments need to be responsive on. And so then people ask the questions about whether the types of things that government is doing and proposing are really the right things.
0: Well, and and so uh, one of the key issues that's in the focus right now is the gun
2: buyback legislation, Exactly. And so um, there's a lot of discussion about whether this is, again, like this is the measure that is going to reach the sort of outcome that government is trying to reach. And so there's a lot of discussion, I think, even within the caucuses, not just between the caucuses and the parties in the House of Commons, about whether um, taking certain approaches is, again, going to actually meet the problem for what it is or whether it is something that's sort of based on a general fear of guns and not necessarily um, you know a more targeted response to what's what's really happening. And sometimes too, the liberals will be accused of of taking a sort of riding on some of the the worries about gun prevalence in the United States and mapping those kinds of fears here. And so there's definitely an urban rural split. To this issue, which affects every caucus. And if the liberals, again, are looking to be a bit more responsive to in rural areas, they're going to have to think about how these sorts of, of policies play in places like that.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring up the urban-rural split and divide there because the last time I filled in for Bill, I had a discussion with Tasha Carradine, who is a Tory Mm -hmm. strategist. She was also considering taking a run at the uh, Conservative Party leadership for a while. Uh, She had written a piece and had been suggesting that gun control should actually be a municipal responsibility. Uh, Part of her point was that uh, the situation in, say, Toronto is vastly different than that up in, say, Moussigny. But handguns? I I think that's kind of a similar topic between the two um, uh, uh, municipalities, given even though Toronto has a very large population, Moosonee not so much, and the whole idea of assault weapons. I think that's that's common ground for us, and, and I would rather see national legislation with regards to both of those, so that the law is the same everywhere.
2: That's yeah. It's it's a really interesting and obviously very important and urgent conversation. There and there are definitely the arguments on the two sides. People will say, "Listen, like wh- how things are playing out in a community, is a specific community issue, and the federal government does not have a close enough lens." or a way to be responsive really to what's happening in a community so there's this sense of look like let let communities be self-governing and they can understand their own problems and act accordingly and it's better that way. On the other hand, then you've got a country that has, you know, different gun laws depending on where you are. And when you're talking again about things like, you know, assault rifles and things like like that's that's a major issue. Like wh- why what what theory of justice would have different laws when it comes to firearms in different places? And so there's the push and pull between how is and is there a way to get a balance so that municipal governance is possible in ways that make policies more responsive and better in communities. But at the same time, there is a federal standard or there's a kind of a federal applicability so that there's not just a patchwork because that really gets complicated. And I suspect not really that's that's not where you find good policy.
0: Well, there's also been some talk about a term that's in the proposed legislation, and that was assault-style weapons instead of going through and actually listing things like, you know, uh, an AR-15 or um, any other assault-style weapons uh, Mm -hmm. that are out there already. Uh, My feeling was that if you put assault-style weapons in there, um, it prevents a gunmaker from making certain modifications. So it's almost the same thing as might be listed in some legislation without it actually being listed in that legislation.
2: Yeah, and I think this is the type of thing <clears throat> that is going to like be the topic of conversation lots of places, but also in the legislative, in the parliamentary committees that deal, the parliamentary committee that deals with the bill. It's going to be those sorts of details that the parties really want to get into and that experts will weigh in on. Because... It has to do with how the bill will apply over time and different interpretations can have a big effect on how the bill actually works in practice. And something like that, like the, the the weapon that was used, for example, in the mass shooting in Nova Scotia, like that sort of thing becomes, you know, so important. And because people realize that something that you didn't think would ever happen in your community does happen and you may never have thought about this before. And all and you may not have had a strong opinion on gun control. You may not have had a strong opinion on what certain rifles and certain weapons are banned and which ones aren't and what the, you know, what the rules are. You may never have thought of that before. But now all of a sudden you're dealing with it because there was a mass shooting in your community. And you are this is very important to you. And so that that's the type of thing I think that's going to end up making a lot of the 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 dialogue around this legislation. And it's not going to be an easy thing for the liberals to get through at all, I don't think.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, who's director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, One of the other key issues that uh, I I hope gets resolved this year is the issue of health care funding between the federal governments and the provinces. Uh, In November, there was supposed to be a meeting um, that was going to produce some sort of an agreement. That did not happen. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos could not reach an agreement with the provinces. uh, Mostly over, um, well, it depends on your interpretation of why he walked away from the table. Uh, the, the feds want accountability for the money that's being given to the provinces. The provinces are saying, no, it's our jurisdiction. We'll spend it how we want.
2: Yeah. I mean, this health care back and forth between the feds and the provinces is such a, a core part of Canadian intergovernmental relations. We're used to this. When things really flare up and there are massive pressures on the health care system, we have the two sides, you know, the federal and provincial going back and forth about whose fault it is, who should pay who's doing, you know, who's doing the right thing, who needs to be doing more. And so we see uh, these kind of breakdowns in communication because there's posturing going on. Each side wants to say the other is the one at fault or the one that's not really kind of holding their end of the bargain. And so they'll both kind of storm off and walk away from the table and they want to position themselves as being on the right side of things and dumping on the other. But at the same time, I think we're really, we're at a kind of a, a, a critical moment, I think, where there's a lot of strain on the federation not just from healthcare there's a sense that from a unity perspective we've got a lot of cracks and also from a pragmatic perspective from the, the sense that the institutions the structures the fu- they're not functioning in the way that we need them to so you know if you kind of think of how many times that we had this healthcare conversation and it hasn't really ever solved anything we keep pouring money in we keep at times we've taken money out we've made different changes on how services are provided we've like we've kind of tinkered but it's never really fundamentally shifted and i think at this point you've got some premiers who are willing to have pretty transformational conversations about healthcare. Like there's a, you know, there are questions around whether Doug Ford is really going to push toward a much more privatized system. And I think to the extent that the federal government is saying, "Hey, look, we're not going to give you any money unless you spend it the way we want." That gives Ford some runway to say, "They won't cooperate with us, so never mind, we're going to do it our own way."
0: Well, and but in the meantime, it's the everyday Canadian citizen that's paying the price for this because we've got health care in crisis. We have hospitals on the brink. We've got every weekend, it seems that there's another ER at a hospital somewhere in this
2: province that has to shut down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And frankly, in Nova Scotia, we're used to that. It's always an announcement on the radio about how such and such ER is closed. And I mean, COVID just made it much, much worse and so i mean because it's, it was just such a big strain on an already strained system and now we're not seeing um you know it's it's, it's scary if you go look for a healthcare service and you're trying to figure out you know what's what's going to happen and people assume i think that part of the 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 commitments of the healthcare system from both orders of government is if things really get bad somebody somewhere is going to pony up the money to fix it somebody will cover this even if it means putting them you know putting a deficit and a debt in a critical situation they'll do it but now i think there's there's less of of a trust in that there's there's less public trust that this the, the healthcare system is going to come through for you there's more worry about you might need care and not get it your relatives might need care and not get it and so i think that's it's even though we're used to this back and forth about healthcare You're right. You know, this this is basically it comes down to what the citizen is looking at and whether your service is going to be there for you. And it's scary to think it won't be. But I think this this conversation is somewhat different in that you've got a number of provincial players who are willing to have on, you know, somewhat off the beaten path or off the traditional path conversations about what might happen.
0: Well, and as I said before, you know, in the meantime, The average everyday Canadian is wondering, you know, am I going to get the surgery that I need? Um, Are there going to be nurses, enough nurses on the floor to take care of my loved ones? It's a situation that is not sustainable. To your earlier point, we were teetering towards this brink for quite some time. Uh, COVID certainly kicked that into the highest gear possible. But nothing's really changed. We're still back at the table, at least sometimes, and, and some people are walking away. This can't continue.
2: Exactly. and that's when you have to start looking at it. it's not it's not just the fact that healthcare is a very complex issue, which obviously it is, but there's also about um, what like what sorts of infrastructural changes need to happen from a federal provincial perspective because it seems like there's not the right mechanism to be able to drive a you know meaningful accountability or problem solving. There is not the right mechanism in the Constitution to be able to say, okay, like, here's how do we get this thing on the right path once and for all. And so without that, you get this passing the buck and this avoiding accountability as opposed to really living accountability. And so what does the voter do when governments are able to pass blame back and forth? Like it leaves that leaves the citizen, regardless of the policy issue, the infrastructural institutional issue leaves the voter Struggling to figure out where to put accountability, and if you can't do that, then it begs into question. All you know, why why bother voting if if we can't get action on the things we care about? And so it's got massive, you know, across the board implications.
0: Well, and boy, did we ever see that last year with mm. you know pathetic voter turnouts at, oh, yeah. both, at at every level of government.
2: Quebec did well; they all seem always to do well, but but at the same time, yeah, I mean, Ontario was less than 40%, less than 50%. The last time Nova Scotia had an election the year before, it was just over 50%. And so we're seeing, you know, even when, even in change elections, even if it's not a change election, no matter what, you know, the other factors are, it seems like we're really seeing a slide in people's engagement in institutional politics and in those kinds of questions. And so that's, that's dangerous too, right? Like if you get... A really, you know, big, it's large number of people who are just saying my vote doesn't count, or it doesn't matter who I vote for; they're all the same anyway there's a real danger to that disengagement becoming um, a license for those who are elected Mm -hmm. to do whatever the heck they want, because they're assuming that half of the people aren't listening anyway.
0: And we seem to be seeing that play out in Ontario. But that is a conversation for another day. Dr. Lori Turnbull is director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Thank you for your time. And no doubt, we'll have plenty of opportunity to speak again this year on a number of topics. Thanks so much for your time, Lori. Thank you, too. Take care.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: During the accountability hearing for the use of the Emergencies Act, we heard that certain risk analyses conducted on the Freedom Convoy and different groups that were joining in were either downplayed or ignored. And then we heard that the Prime Minister said he was not briefed about Chinese interference in the 2019 election kind of makes you shake your head. And for any one of a number of reasons why, one of those shaking his head is Phil Gursky. He's president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's also a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and is a former CSIS analyst. And he's just written a piece on intelligence assessments and whether or not those who should be reading them are actually doing so. Good morning, Phil, and thanks for joining us today.
3: My pleasure, Shona. Happy New Year to you.
0: Happy New Year to you. It has got to make you kind of... Uh, scratch your head at the very <laughs> least. I I, I I when I heard the Prime Minister say he wasn't briefed on this, frankly I couldn't believe it. Well,
3: that makes two of us. Actually probably makes thirty-seven million of us, Shona. <laughs> um, you know, as you mentioned in your introduction, I, I spent a long time in intelligence here in Canada, more than 32 years with both CSIS and CSE, which is a signals intelligence organization. And your role's a very simple one. You you gather intelligence, you process it. Uh, So you you gather raw information, you process it, you extract the intelligence, you write it up in very, very short paragraphs because these are busy people you're dealing with. And you basically send it to them. You can't force them to read it. You can say, here's what we've learned about X, Y or Z, which we think you should know. Here's our assessment of what it means. And then you make decisions on what to do about it. And in all honesty, in more, more than three decades in the business here in Canada, one conclusion that I drew and many of my colleagues did as well, is that we have a very, very poor intelligence culture in Canada, which means that we're not sure that clients understood the value of intelligence. And when, especially when it, went against, when it went against their sort of preconceived notions of things, they didn't want to hear it. So we got a lot of problems here in Canada, unfortunately.
0: Is one of those preconceived notions that, you know, if pe- people don't really respond here. We don't have a lot of problems. We're, we're everybody's favorite cousin. Nobody wants to threaten us.
3: Well, it's a good problem to have, isn't it? Because there's lots of countries in the world like Somalia and Afghanistan and Iraq, where uh, that doesn't uh, occur where they're in they're in deep trouble when it comes to you know groups like terrorists and other types of violence. Maybe it's a bit of complacency. Um, as you said, we're a very safe country here in Canada. I, my career started at the end of the Cold War. you know, we that mutually assured destruction with us in the Soviet Union. And we haven't been beset by a lot of terrorism in our history. I, wrote, you know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called "The Peaceable Kingdom," which outlines the complete history of terrorism in our country since 1867. And we are doing fairly well, but it doesn't mean that there aren't threats out there. And and thankfully, we have intelligence and law enforcement agencies to monitor those threats and to provide information to the government so they can take action.
0: Well, it really didn't surprise me to find out that Canada was being targeted and our election was by the Chinese. We are not a favored nation right now, you know. There was that little thing about Meng Wanzhou and holding her for the United States and the whole wallway thing. Like, how did it didn't surprise me that they were targeting our election.
3: No, and it shouldn't surprise anyone, Shona. I mean, you know, the Chinese, it's, it's, it's you know, fun, it, we have a very odd relationship, a very complicated one with the Chinese, as do a lot of Western countries. We've recognized their economic strength and we've recognized the fact that they're a huge market. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a lot older than you, Shona, and, you know, Made in China was something that really started to gain ground here in Canada in the 60s and 70s. Where a lot of our, our che- originally cheap products and more 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 recently uh, not cheap products are being manufactured there, so we have we have a relationship with them out of necessity, but they're also not our friend. They're, they're also not a democracy. They are a brutal communist dictatorship. They've been you know incarcerating over a million Uyghurs uh, for years now in the northwest. They're they're messing about in Tibet and and in Taiwan, Hong Kong. They're threatening the South a- South Asia Sea, which they claim as their territorial waters so why would anyone think that they're on our side or that they see things the way that we do so my guess and it's not just me showing a lot of people would say that economic considerations are are sort of uh, overruling security ones and maybe that's why we're not seeing the type of decision making that one would say hmm this is pretty obvious you guys should do this but well lots of money's involved and you know when money's involved it changes people's opinions
0: Well, you know, sometimes I don't actually believe what politicians say to us. What? I know. It (laughs) might be, you know, my years in journalism that have jaded me a little bit. What I look for are the things that are undeniable. And I'm I'm pretty sure as an intelligence analyst, you would uh, agree with this. Uh, You know, so I'm not really surprised by the words that the prime minister was saying. But what I would want to see if that was true, that some heads would be rolling because the Prime Minister and the leader of the Liberal Party wasn't informed that, you know, at least some of his Liberal candidates in the last election might have been targeted. I would expect to see some action taken. Have we seen that?
3: That'd make two of us. Uh, No, we haven't. And again, part of it is that when you work in intelligence, you don't often have direct access to the Prime Minister, which means that you'll brief some fairly senior officials. And then it's incumbent upon them to pass the information on to the top leadership. I can't recall my entire career. I mean, I think I briefed a minister once, but that was as high as I ever got. So you're relying on the goodwill on the interest and on the understanding of other officials that surround the prime minister. And you know, as well as I just shown, he's got a a large coterie that's, you know, is always with him at all times, right? Briefing him on various matters. And if those people decide for whatever reason not to pass it on, well, you know, what are you going to do kind of thing? But yeah, Chinese interference in the elections has been going on for years. We've been documenting it for a very, very long time, and the fact that nothing's been done about it should give Canadians to ask the question: Well, so it's okay if a foreign state interferes in our elections, so that our votes are not going to the people we thought they're going to, or? Candidates are being affected, and therefore MPs, and therefore you know, relative majorities in Parliament are being affected by this kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's a, not a good situation, and it it should make a lot of Canadians sit up and take notice. That okay, how do we make this better? Well, you make this better by listening to your intelligence services more.
0: Well, that would be step number one. You would think. <laughs> well, I mean,
3: <laughs> I'm a little biased, but yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no doubt we pay a lot of money for these reports to be written.
3: We do. You know, intelligence certainly isn't as large as as it is in the United States, United Kingdom, for example, but it's in the billions of dollars. I mean, in terms of your collection capabilities, your your analysts, your computer power and things like that. We're not talking small change here. And I just found through my, you know, decade three decades from the eighties to the middle of the two thousand and tens, that it wasn't always taken that seriously. And 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 fine, you've got a choice to be made, but then don't complain you didn't know. And for the prime minister to say he wasn't brief, I'm thinking How could he not have been briefed? Like, where was the roadblock here? I mean, the information was there. it was provided in usable format. Why was not getting to him? That's the question the prime minister should be asking, not whether his intelligence services are competent enough.
0: Yeah. We're speaking with Phil Gursky, who's president of Borealis Threats and Risk Consulting. He's also a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Um, what should happen in light of this? I mean, you started by saying, you know, somebody ought to read these reports at some <laughs> point. That's a good starting point. But what are some of the next steps that really ought to happen here?
3: Well... Certainly, I think <clears throat> our intelligence services need support. Uh, we don't—they don't need the prime minister to say they're not doing their job or not focusing on the right thing. Secondly, uh, you know, a very strong message has to be sent to the People's Republic of China. I mean, as I said they're not our friend; they're not an ally. Yes, we have economic interests with them. But given the uh, very publicly known information as to what they're doing in our country, not just you know through Huawei, but you know, the election interference, uh, harassing Canadians who are Uyghur or Tibetan in origin. Uh, you, you may have read Shona recently they set up police stations in Canada covertly to monitor Canadians of Chinese descent. Uh, that's simply unacceptable for any nation to allow... Uh, a non friend to set up shop here and basically do what they want on our soil. So a very strong message has to be sent to the Chinese. Um, Will it be sent? Um, I hope. I'm not going to say for certain that I have a confidence it will because of the aforementioned economic interests. But no self-respecting nation uh, can essentially allow this to happen without pushing back to some point.
0: Uh, It'll be interesting to see what does happen indeed. And when it does or doesn't, I'm sure we'll be speaking with you again, Phil. I'm sure we
3: will, Shona. Thanks for calling and have a great new year.
0: Thank you. And the same to you and your family. Phil Gursky is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's also a distinguished fellow at with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. If you want to read his piece, it's available on the Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting website. You're listening
1: to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: This may be the first day back to reality after the holidays for most of us. And one of the things that may be catching your eye this morning is the price of the pumps, creeping back up to just under a buck fifty. If you can find it for less, go get it. But we are just at the start of winter, and we've got a long way to go. Joining us now is Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, you are a man of math, facts, and figures, but it may just take a crystal ball to figure out what is going to happen with the price of gas this year.
4: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, certainly the last year was a roller coaster, and we didn't see it coming. A year ago at this time, of course, Russia had not begun its invasion of Ukraine. And you might wonder why is that important. But Russia is the second largest producer of oil in the world, behind the United States. Saudi Arabia is third. Canada is fifth. And so goes Russian oil. So goes the price that we pay at the pump we saw what a roller coaster ride. At one point, oil was well over $110, $120 a barrel. It ended the year at around $70 a barrel. Here we are in early January. It's crept back up to $80 a barrel, and that's why the price at the pump has gone up where it has. Now, is it going to stay relatively calm? I think the answer is yes. I think uh, Europe has figured out what to do with Russian oil, and so I'm expecting to see the price at the pumps for the first quarter of the year, the first three months of the year, be in this $1. fifty a litre range, sometimes a little below it, sometimes just a little above it, but it'll be pretty stable then. But in the, uh, after the first quarter, I'm not sure where any of this is going to go.
0: Um, there have been some predictions uh, that we could see things going up near $2 again uh, per litre. Please say no. Please say that won't happen.
4: Well, I can't rule it out. So here's the problem. I can't rule it out, just like I couldn't rule it out over the last year. It, it, there are world forces. Now, maybe I should say people say, well, why why is the world price of oil make a difference? I thought Canada was self-sufficient, and it is. Canada exports more oil than we import. That's the definition of being self-sufficient. But we pay the same price for Canadian oil as they do on the world market. There is no discounted rate. You know, we'll get Canadian oil cheap, just like we can't get Canadian gold cheaper or Canadian diamonds cheaper. There's a world price, and we have to abide by it. And, and we just don't know what's happening in Russia. You know, we, we we've been watching this. I'll call it skirmish or invasion now for ten months. Uh, honestly, I thought Ukraine would have fallen by now. When a world superpower says it wants something, I assumed it would get it fairly quickly. But the fact that it hasn't has caused all this tumult. And I don't know where this is going to go. Or, uh, If, for instance, Mr. Putin were to use some sort of short-term nuclear weapon, short-range nuclear weapon, my gosh, you know, we could see oil shoot up to $200 a barrel. I mean, anything's almost possible. So enjoy the calm while we have it and be ready to ride the waves if they should appear.
0: Well, one of the things that I've also been keeping an eye on is actually the price of diesel because that impacts trucking and that impacts the price of everything else. And it really hasn't come down that much.
4: No, no, it hasn't. And, and again, I'm a little hard pressed to explain it. Usually uh, there's about a 60 cent a liter difference right now between the price of diesel and the price of regular gasoline, 50 to 60 cents. Uh, we've never seen this before. And I'm a little hard pressed to explain why it's happening. It, it appears there's a bit of a shortage of supply of diesel. I used to believe that diesel was a byproduct of the refining process and they were almost happy to, to sell it for anything because uh, they couldn't find another use for it. But now at the moment, there seems to be a bit of a shortage. And so diesel prices are going to stay high in the first quarter of the year. Uh, And then again, we just don't know where this is going to go as the year unfolds. We're hoping for calm. We're hoping for stability. But, you know, again, tell me what's going to happen in Russia. Tell me what's happening in Ukraine. Then I can give you a better indication of what's going to happen on the world market.
0: Yeah, well, if we had that information. (laughs) Yes, it would be better for all of us, but sadly, we don't. Um, so what are some of the factors that we should be looking at to kind of get an idea of which way things are going to go?
4: Right. So, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, if you don't mind me talking about a couple other economic issues, price of gasoline is separate, is separate from something like the interest rates. We think interest rates have hit their maximum. There might be a little more upward movement, but it's going to be steady. And in fact, in the second half of the year, interest rates are likely going to come down. We think inflation is going to be coming down more um, in, the, in the second half of the year. We might even get down into the 3 to 4% range. We might even see interest rates cut slightly. None of that's going to affect the price of oil. So really what I'm looking at is OPEC, the oil-producing cartel. Uh, when oil was headed towards $60 a barrel, you and I cheered Pumps uh, pr- Prices at the pump were getting down into a, a $1.20 a liter range, and we were, yay, look at that, how wonderful that is. OPEC said, we don't like it at $60 a barrel. So they actually cut their production twice in 2022. We're going to be watching to see if they do further cuts to try to get the price back up closer to, say, $90 or $100 a barrel. Or, uh, and I can tell you that Mr. Biden's working on this, trying to get them to reverse some of those cuts and pump a little more oil keep the price down into that $60, $70 a barrel range. That's going to be an ongoing discussion throughout the year. But any any movements in the Middle East, those are going to be very important for us here in Canada.
0: Well, at least for the short term, there might be some stability, as you say. So thank you for that bit of news. Appreciate that. And we'll no doubt have you back to talk about this and, and some of the other issues as well. Marvin, as always, Absolutely. thank you for your expertise.
4: Happy New Year to everyone,
0: too. Happy New Year to you, too. Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: As we take a look back to 2022, not a really great year on the roads. We could be doing a much better job. Joining us now is OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt. Kerry, thank you for your time. For having me on. Um, I wanted to start this conversation by expressing our sincere condolences to you and the OPP with the funeral for Constable Greg Pershala coming up tomorrow in Barrie.
1: It has been a very tough week since last Tuesday when this all took place down in Haldeman. Uh, The funeral is going to be up tomorrow in Barrie, and uh, I know there will be thousands of officers showing up. And I had the uh, honor to uh, be part of that procession as we uh, took him from Haldeman up to Toronto and up to the funeral home last week. And, uh, you know, it was such an emotional and beautiful sight to see the people coming out to show their appreciation and their honour, you know, on the overpasses as we travel underneath.
0: It's a crime that touches all of us, particularly because Constable Perciallo was working so close to the communities in Hamilton and London.
1: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, a rookie officer, really, as, as he was just getting into his uh, career, and uh, looking forward to uh, you know many years and decades of of policing and community service and cut down short uh, just tragically and unnecessarily, it, it's heartbreaking. And I know the family are devastated as as they we are as a community as well. So I know it'll be a uh, another tough day tomorrow as we uh, say goodbye.
0: Um, But I also wanted to focus on the year-end report, uh, the 2022 road report. The stats are not good. We could be doing a much better job.
1: Well, we certainly uh, could be for sure. And and that's the problem that we see uh, over and over again. And when we look at these numbers of people uh, dying in motor vehicle collisions uh, across the province, uh, off-road vehicles, uh, marine and roadway crashes, uh, you know, 353 is what I had reported there uh, uh, last, um, last week as we were looking at the preliminary numbers. Those numbers will likely change as, uh, as they go up and down. We've had uh, more tragedy already. We had another uh, head-on, uh, or not a head-on, a rollover fatality on the 1st down at Fruitland Road, uh, QEW, and Highway was closed from Highway 50 there on, um, on January 1st. Uh, you know, we look at aggressive and impaired and distracted and people not wearing their seatbelts and so on. The two people that were killed on the first, two of them were rejected. Two of them stayed in the vehicles. One person pronounced the seat at the scene. Another person taken to hospital will, will, will recover. Uh, but again, absolutely needless collisions and unnecessary collisions because this is so preventable.
0: Well, and just this morning, a pedestrian was killed uh, in Norfolk County uh, in a hit and run.
1: Yeah, well, and we've had 29 uh, pedestrians uh, killed already this year and or last year i guess uh, all together and we're still kind of putting together all the numbers that uh, we can come up with uh to, for statistics and we as we look back at year over year and compare you know are we going in the right direction or not and in some cases we're not going in the right direction and you know as uh, traffic and in weather conditions and road conditions you know are changing and very unexpected and unpredictable I'll look at the weather we're dealing with right now and all of a sudden you get freezing rain or ice and snow and uh, and we start having crashes. But when we start getting these fatalities as well, you know, that's when we start seeing those big four categories, you know, rear their head and we start seeing, you know, speeding, uh, number one killer across the province right now and, um, you know, followed by inattention and then and, and seatbelt use and, and drug or alcohol impairment. And those uh, are... Again, 100% preventable. we we still we're just wrapping up our festive ride campaign now, and we will have numbers uh, re- to report on that in the in the next day or so to, uh, uh, to you know and analyze where we're at. And again, it's pretty simple: if you drink, don't drive; if you drive, don't drink. But um, you know, far too often, hundred seven hundred or more people were charged with impaired driving in the last. Uh, Six, eight weeks or whatever since the end of November when we launched our festive ride campaign. And, you know, again, the number of fatalities that we've uh, had to investigate because of drug or alcohol use
0: are staggering. How did 2022 stack up against other years?
1: Well, you know, that's what we're, we're trying to determine all those numbers right now to see, uh, you know, if we're up or down. When I was comparing just year over year, we were up uh, in all categories uh, in uh, the uh, in the traffic fatalities except for pedestrians. We had more pedestrians die in 2021 than we did in 2022. But, uh, you know, overall fatalities, up 15%. Uh, year over year uh, drug and alcohol was actually significantly higher uh, up 70 percent we had 31 people die last year in drug or alcohol uh, related collisions and 53 uh, were killed this past year so again just an enormous number of uh, of crashes and fatalities and, and those are lives lost never mind All the collisions that resulted in serious injury, and you know, we often talk about non-life-threatening injuries, which is a good thing. But just because it's non-life-threatening, doesn't mean you know it's not going to alter their lifestyle or the way they they recover, and and that can take uh, days, weeks, months, years, or some people will suffer uh, of the uh, the effects from a crash, and and it can be even a, a very minor. Type crash, you would think, but the people involved will be uh, subjected to pain and uh, you know rehabilitation for for years in in the future. So, uh, again, we're just trying to make our road safer, and yet we can't do that ourselves. We need everyone to be part of that uh, uh, support to have uh, people sharing the road safely, being aware of their surroundings, driving when it's appropriate, and staying off the road when they should not be driving because uh, these numbers will continue to climb as people make bad decisions.
0: Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll be looking forward to uh, a further deep dive of the numbers as they become available. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
4: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.